How many have ever got a cut someplace on your body? I, I was pretty sure it would be pretty much unanimous because we are a little bit careless sometimes, aren't we? Even if it's a paper cut or some kind of a scratch, uh, we've all had injuries and they've healed, haven't they? And sometimes they don't heal quite so fast because they get infected. And some of us have had infected cuts or scratches. We don't like that experience. You see, that's, that's a wound in our body, and it needs to heal. And uh, we're, gonna, we're talking about wounded faith. Not only can our physical bodies get injuries, but our faith can also get injured. And when our faith gets injured, it's not quite so easy to find healing because anytime there's a, a cut or a scratch, some kind of a problem with our, with our faith, you see, Satan has got an open door like, in, like a germ to infect us. Anytime there's an opening, he can attack us. And if we don't find healing with that open wound, it's going to get infected. And for years, we're going to carry that on. And I want to see God set us free. And I'm talking to myself as much as I'm talking to you. There's a story I want us to look at when we're talking about wounded faith. Last week, uh, Pastor Adam started this series uh, on forgiveness. And he did a great job, didn't he? On forgiveness, because every one of us have to deal with forgiveness. Some of us have done pretty good with it. But pretty much all of us have some area where we haven't done so well with it. I mean, when people hurt us, they don't deserve forgiving, right? Forgiveness is all about us, not about them. It's not about them deserving it. It's about us and our freedom to not be held back by that. So today I want to talk about this wounded faith concept. Uh, We're going to look at chapter 5 of the Gospel of John. And I'm going to read the first 15 verses because the story... um, is one of my favorites in the Bible because I think it is, I think this story is here as a prophetic message for God to help us see ourselves in it. Starting in verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie. The blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? I mean, think about that. That calls for a yes or no answer, right? Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, 
the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they said to him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who, healed had no, who was healed had no idea who he was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. I want to unpack this amazing story. And I also want to connect it to each of us because it's a story about us. It's in the Bible because we're supposed to be reading it and we're supposed to be learning from it. Invalid faith or invalid faith. Is there such a thing as having faith that's not valid? That, that is the faith of an invalid. I think, I think it is. I, I think when a person has enough faith to lay their life down, to hijack an airplane loaded with people that don't believe what he believes, to fly it into a building full of people that don't believe what he believes, thinking that the end result was he's going to make God happy. That is invalid faith. Those people have more faith than you and I do. Because they'll lay their life down. We're afraid to speak up to some in somebody's life. That's they've got faith. God, give me that kind of faith, but I want to have faith in the right thing, not the wrong thing. I want to have valid faith, not invalid faith. So we may think, well, sure, of course, those guys, that's that's invalid faith, yeah, but that's not me. It is equally invalid to say to a God who would give his own son to die on the cross for you. It's equally invalid to say, but I really don't think God can use somebody like me. I have blown it. I have fallen too far. I have disappointed him and wounded him too much. I want to please him, but I can't please him. That is a lie right out of the pit of hell. Because God only wants to use sinners who have repented. Those are the only people he's interested in using. I mean, look at, the, look at the people, the men and women down through history that God has used. He doesn't very often use people that started with righteousness. He uses people that starts with their sinfulness and get redeemed through the blood of the Lamb. That's what it's about. So the question isn't so much as do you believe. The question is what do you believe? You believe the wrong thing, it takes you no place. You believe the right thing, it takes you to the mountaintop. Yes. I want us to believe the right thing. So let me unpack this story. I've, I've uh, kind of broke it down, let, let's say, into, into uh, I think there's five. Yeah, five different segments I want us to see. And here, here's the first one. It's in verse 3. Let me read verse 3 again so you know where I'm coming from. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie. The blind, the lame... The paralyzed. Different kinds of invalidity. Different kinds of handicaps. Different kinds of issues. This is, they're gathered around the pool of Bethesda. Now you probably heard me say this before. In in Aramaic, the prefix Beth 
means house. Just a couple weeks ago, I think I talked about Bethel, the house of God. Bethesda. Esda means mercy or grace. So this is, a, this is a place called the pool of grace. That ought to put a smile on your face. And there's a whole congregation gathered around the pool. People who believe. They believe an angel's going to come and stir the water. And if they can just be the first one to get in, they're going to be healed. So they all are people of faith gathered around this pool just, just waiting for the move of God. When the, when the move of God comes, if I'm the first one in, I get healed. So let's all stay on our toes. Let, let's, let's get like we're, we're ready to race because the first one in is the one that gets healed. They believe this. They believed it day after day after day. After week, after week, after week, after month, after month, after year, after year. And Jesus found out when he got there and looked around and he saw this congregation of wounded people. He looked around and he discovered this one guy had been there for a long time. Matter of fact, the Bible says 38 years he had been there. 38 years. Do you know how long 38 years is? Do you, do you know where you were 38 years ago? It's a long time. 38 years ago right now, Ronald Reagan was just breaking in the White House in his first year as president. 38 years ago. Pat Sajak and Vanna White were just in their first season of Wheel of Fortune 38 years ago. 38 years ago, it was 1983. Computer manufacturers had just agreed upon a protocol that would allow these computers to talk to one another, and today we call it the Internet. Amazing. 38 years ago, New Hope Christian Center was called Calvary Chapel of Waterloo, and we were located in that little building down there between the library and the elementary school in Waterloo. This is what your pastor looked like 38 years ago. And some of you are saying, where is Adam? I don't see Adam. That's because Anita had just announced to me that we were going to have a baby boy, and he wasn't born until February the next year. 38 years. So... Not everybody there had been that way for 38 years, but this man had. After 38 years, I would think you pretty much give up hope. After 38 years, you pretty much accept the way you are. You accept your situation. What a depressing place. A whole congregation of people who had problems. Let's go on to the second thing I want us to see. It's in verse 7. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. I'm going to call this 
The first part we're calling the case of the invalid pool. The second part I want us to see is the curse of the victim mentality. He's got a, you know what I mean by mentality? It's the, your, your state of mind, it's the way you think, your mentality. When you have a, a victim mentality, it's when you see yourself as a victim. When you see yourself as a victim and you get in that mindset, you see yourself as a victim every place you turn. You can't win because you see yourself as a victim. And I think I'm talking to a lot of people in this room with a victim mentality that don't even know they have a victim mentality. You want to be healed? Well, yes, I want to be healed. We all want to be healed. Everybody's here because we want to be healed. But I can't. I can't because every time the angel stirs the water, somebody else gets in ahead of me. A victim mentality is always thinking, you know, there's always somebody smarter than me. There's always somebody richer than me. There's always somebody with more better opportunities than me. There's always somebody that has more friends than me. So we compare ourselves with everybody else. That's a victim mentality. To think that you are less than other people. To think that you are at the bottom of the, the, the ladder instead of somewhere on the way up. It's a victim mentality. I developed a victim mentality in the seventh grade. In the seventh grade, I was going through this, this thing called puberty. And I was trying to find where I belonged and trying to find who I was. And I didn't, I, I, I didn't get as good a grades as everybody else, so I tried to pull pranks. Pranks on the teachers, pranks on my friends. Uh, late, later on, the president of my high school class referred to me as the class clown. I didn't think of myself that then, but that's what my classmates thought of me. So I didn't focus on my grades, which is why you go to school in the first place, right? And nothing was more disheartening to me at the end of that year when I had to take my report card home to my parents, and it had that word on the back, retained. You know what retained means? That means we're not moving him on to the next grade. That means I had to go back to the seventh grade again. And now I had to do it with a bunch of kids a year younger than I. How disheartening, how depressing, how humiliating that was. And I picked up this fear of failure. I didn't want to fail. I had failed because that's what retained means. It's, it's a highfalutin term for flunked. I flunked. And I had to go back to it again. But now I didn't want to be a loser. I did not want to be a failure. So I had to work extra hard. Because I didn't know my multiplication tables. I didn't know an adjective from an adverb. I was way behind everybody else. But I didn't want to be a loser. So I worked hard. But I was so far behind, it was hard to catch up. When I... I got in the army after I finally did graduate from high school. I went in the army and I found out Uncle Sam would pay for my college education if I wanted to take it via correspondence. So I signed up for this correspondence course with the University of Wisconsin. And the first course, of course, because it is a correspondence course, was writing. I had, I had to take a course in writing. 
So I wrote my first essay. I thought I understood the questions, and I sent it in, and it came back with an F. Not a D minus, an F. And the instructor gave me some encouraging notes on what to do, and then wanted me to resubmit that assignment. I saw that F and saw myself as a failure. I wadded it up, threw it in the trash can, never tried again. You see, if you think you're a failure, you are because you act like it and you set yourself up and you walk through the failure door. This is what I did. Victim mentality. I can't do it. I'm not as good as somebody else. I just can't do this. But let me tell you the end of the story. Years later, when I was in ministry, I realized there's more for me to know than what I do. So I decided to go back to school and again do it correspondence. And I finished up a bachelor's degree and it says on that certificate hanging on my wall right under the bachelor degree classification, it says with high distinction. You know what that means? I had to look it up because I didn't know. High distinction (laughs) means straight A's. Straight A's, top of the class. You see, I wasn't a failure. I just saw myself as a failure, so I acted like a failure, so I failed. When you start acting like a winner, you start winning. And I realized God had to change my mindset because a victim mentality holds me back to the past, holds me where I was. A victim mentality will hold you where you are. You will never move forward if, you, if that's who you see yourself. You've got to get out of that. If you have a victim mentality and you feel like the rest of the world is looking down on you, You can move to a faraway kingdom. Marry Prince Charming. And think that now you have it made. But if your mind says everybody looks down on you, you will have a victim mentality and you will see everybody looking down on you. And I want everybody in this room to realize nobody's looking down on you. You just think that. It's a, it's a victim thing. We need to get out of that stinking thinking. I am a child of God. I can do anything through Christ that he wants me to do. We need to keep telling ourselves this. We're not losers. We're winners. We're children of the king. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And this victim mentality is what Satan puts in our mind. It holds us back. He's the accuser of the brethren. But it's the Holy Spirit that empowers us and transforms the way we think. So we need to stop looking at how, thinking about how other people see us, and we need to start seeing ourselves how God sees us. You see, that's the difference. That's the being transformed by the renewing of your mind. We have to see ourselves as God sees us. On May 2nd, we're going to have a group deliverance session. That may seem a little bit strange because deliverance is really kind of personal. But this is kind of a a guide to help you work through your personal problems. It's not a matter of everybody else knowing what they are. So I want to encourage you to think about going through that group deliverance on May 2nd. Here's the third thing I want us to see in this story because it does get better. There is good news here. Verse 8. Then Jesus said to him, Get up. The NIV has an exclamation point there. Get up. Pick up your mat and 
walk. Doesn't Jesus see he can't walk? No, he doesn't. He can't see that because he doesn't have a victim mentality. Jesus comes into this earth with God's mentality, and he intends to make the people in this world, like you and I, everything God wants us to be. It's a process, but somebody's got to start the process. And Jesus came to start it. Take up your mat and walk. Just do it. Just do it. Just take the first step. Just try to get up. Just try to pick up your mat. Act. Isn't it amazing? There are so many healing stories in the New Testament because Jesus told somebody to go do something. And when they went and did it, when they washed the mud off their eyes, when they went to the, tell the, show the priest they were clean, when they just did what he told them to do, healing came in the act of going, in the act of doing it. When did it happen? How did it happen? Nobody knows. It just happened. And that's the way it works in the kingdom of God. So one of the things you and I need to do is we need to envision a breakthrough. What if there was a breakthrough coming? What if God was doing a healing in our life? What if God was going to deliver us and set us free? What if God was going to renew what the enemy stole away? And I'll just say right here, I feel right now in my spirit that some of you are here this morning and you're down and discouraged because the enemy stole something from you. And I just feel like the spirit of the Lord is saying God's about to renew it. God's about to give that back. It won't look like you think it looks, but God's going to restore. And when it's all over, you will recognize that it was God that did it. So what would it look like if God restored you? What would it look like if, if God made you new again? What would that look like? Picture that in your mind and then act on it. Get up, walk through that door. Get up, go do that. James 1.25 says, But one who has looked intently at the perfect law, the law of freedom, and has continued in it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an active doer, this person will be blessed in what he does. You have to do it. You can't keep sitting by the pool of mercy, by the pool of grace, expecting God to do something and keep waiting and waiting. You got to get up and take action steps. And when you get up and take action steps, lo and behold, it works. God is with us. So the first thing I want us to see is the, uh, the case of the invalid pool. Secondly, is the curse of the victim mentality. And uh, point three there is the cure is in the action step. You have to take that action step. Oh, Lord, I really need to lose weight and get in shape. God, will you please help me with that? Will you please do that for me? Answer, no. He won't. But he'll show you some diet. He'll remind you what you can do to build your, build your physical body back up. He will give you the action steps, but he will not do it for you. He's a good father. Yes. It's a bad father who does everything for his irresponsible kid. A good father says, go ahead. When you fall down, I'll come with a Band-Aid. Go ahead, ride that bike. That's what a good father does. Kids have to fall and get scratched up because that's how you learn how to ride the bike and roller skate. 
Amen? So here's the tenth, or, or verse 10 is the uh, fourth thing I want us to see. Listen to this. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. I don't know about you, but it put a smile on my face when I read that. How confused this guy must have been. Jesus said, take up your mat and walk. And he did. And he's so excited. And all of a sudden, these religious people come along and said, ah, you can't do that. This is the Sabbath day. You're not supposed to do that on the Sabbath. I think religion confuses people. That's why I don't consider myself a, a, a religionist. I consider myself a Christian. Vast difference. What religion does is it puts together... It assumes people are too dumb to listen to the will of God. So it puts together rules of morality. And you need to do these things, follow these things, and God will be happy with you. It assumes people can't figure it out on their own. Therefore, the religion has to put that standard. One size fits all standard for everybody without any consideration of your heart or what God is doing in your life right now. And it keeps people in bondage. In the faith, we need to consider where a person's heart is, where they are in their spiritual development, what they've been through, what kind of hurts, what what kind of attacks Satan has thrown into their life. It's got to consider all that. That's why I'm a grace preacher. I'd much rather preach about the grace of God than the rules of God. But God does have rules. You want to you mess with the rules? You pay the price. I don't want you to pay a price. I'm trying to get you to avoid the price. However, how do we get in when we messed up if there's no grace? Grace is all about Jesus paying the price. Yes. All right, here's, here's number five. The last one, verse 15. Okay, got four minutes. Verse 15. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. He had to go and tell somebody. It was Jesus that made me whole. He didn't know when the religious leaders asked him, but when he found out, first thing he did is he went back and he told them, listen, he wasn't ratting on Jesus. He wasn't betraying Jesus. He, told, he, he just told the truth. <clears throat> I want to encourage you to tell the Jesus story. Tell somebody the Jesus story. Number four, if I didn't tell you, is the chaos of religion. Number five is the cross was exported. The cross is what changes our lives. When we accept what Jesus did on the cross. That's what delivers us from this bondage. That's what sets us free. The cross always gives credit to Jesus. And the cross takes a risk. And telling others about what Jesus did for us. And the cross will always make some people angry. And isn't that the fear we have? We're afraid they're going to get angry at us. They're not going to believe us. That's the fear of Christianity. Not telling someone else. it's it's, It's a rock of offense. It offends people. But that's okay. Because it set me free. And if I want others to be set free, I ought to tell them. Yes. I mean, if I discovered 
a miracle cure for cancer? And I took the antidote for myself and got healed, but I wouldn't give it to anybody else? What kind of person would I be to just keep it to myself? How selfish is that? But there is an antidote to sin. It's Jesus. And I've applied it to my heart. And it's made a world of difference for me. And if I just keep it to myself, how selfish is that? How selfish is that? So, in conclusion, wrapping it up here. In conclusion, there is a pool of grace. Still is. It's not... It's not some place in Auburn or Fort Wayne where we can go and there's the pool. It's in this room right here. And we are the congregation gathered around the pool of grace. And nobody is going to hold you back. Because nobody has an advantage over you. Jesus died for sinners. Anybody here qualify? He died for sinners. This is such good news. And nobody's going to hold you back. So the challenge is, will you get in the pool? Will you get in the pool? Let's stand together. There is a pool of grace. This team going to lead us in a song. And if you want to get in the pool of grace, here's how you do it. It's not a physical place to go. It's a spiritual thing you step into. If you want in that pool of grace, you know there's something that you need. You need cleansed of something. You need renewed of something. If that's you, I'm going to ask you to come to this altar because I want to pray for people that want to get in the pool. I want to pray for you. So if that's you, as we sing this song, come to this altar. I want to pray deliverance on you.